I don't know whether we can make this podcast. Giles has been in a hell of a state ever since he heard we had a new guest. Come, Mr Sparrow, wake up. Come on, old fellow, wake up. Wake up now. Oi, what do you think you're doing? Leave him alone. Do you know what's wrong with him? Well, no, but... I do. Make some tea. Tea? Tea? He does drink tea. Probably. Off you go and make some. Use the best Something Who tea set, four Dalek mugs, and a TARDIS teapot. Oh, and a few chocolate bars. Right you. I love chocolate bars. Come on, Mr Sparrow. This is no way to behave when you've got visitors. We've come for tea. And chocolate. And chocolate. For a marathon, you mix the peanuts with the caramel. A Mars is bigger and heavier than the Milky Way. Here's the tea. It's too late. He's slipping away. Wait, wait. Just a minute. What is it? That's astronomical nonsense. Mars isn't bigger than the Milky Way. Oh, Mr Sparrow. Hang on. Who are you? What are you doing in the something who bunker? You were slipping away, Mr Sparrow. You had sidekick shock. Sidekick? The cheek of it. Well, if you're going to stay, you may as well sit yourself down and join the podcast. the one. Mm. Welcome to the podcast where we take something old, a Doctor Who story from the original series, compare it with something new, one from the new series, and add something borrowed, the idea for the sketch to make something who. Hello, I'm Richard and we're back with Something Who podcast episode 89, where this time we're looking at two stories in big houses with spooky goings on. We'll look at fourth Doctor story Image of the Fendal from season 15, and after that, we'll examine 11th Doctor outing Hyde from Series 7. And here with me to decide whether these stories bring to mind Bob Holmes or Broken Holmes, we have a great lineup, starting with our resident storyteller and literary critic, Paul. <laughs> Good evening, faithful listeners. Yeah, yeah. We, what the listeners can't hear is is that you're um, all um, geared up for, for uh, another bit of... Um, Playing. What's, what's the word I'm trying to say? Uh, actoring or something. Treading the boards. Yes, that's it. Shouting in the evening. Yeah. Well, Shouting in the evening. I can do some of that tonight yeah. if you prefer. Splendid. Also joining us is science and astronomy writer Giles. Evening. Yeah, we, we hear you've been undertaking a very close investigation of one of the new COVID variants. Uh, yeah, sadly so. Yeah, yeah. Don't seem to have been too too badly affected by it, fortunately. But, um, but hopefully... Uh... Hopefully the mute button will work bonds as if I get a coughing fit at any point. Very good. And joining us for the first time is Rick, who posts on social media as Brick Pandorica and produces fantastic Lego models of Doctor Who scenes and has been a long-time supporter of the podcast. So, hello hey. and good evening. Good evening, everybody. It is fantastic to be with you tonight. Looking forward <laughs> to it all. Excellent. Well, look, I mean, it's it's not that long ago since some of us got together last, but in the meantime, we've had the Christmas episode. And then, rather uncannily like the 2005 reboot, 
no sooner did we meet a new character, <laughs> Ruby Sunday, uh, played by the fantastic Millie Gibson, than we hear stories about her departure. Um, did anyone have anything particularly they wanted to say about the Christmas episode? Four for four. I thought it was terrific. Yeah, good. Uh, that, that was a bleak reference to the fact that there's four new episodes since Russell came back. Sorry if it made sense in my head. Yes. As so many things do. I, I really enjoyed it. It was good family fare. We sat down on Boxing Day morning, sunk in the sofa, and it was a really good pickup. I thought 15th Doctor, full of energy, just sparkled out of the screen, made me have a Doctor I wanted to cheer for right from the off, you know, and out of the shadow of Tennant, which he was for much of the giggle, I, I thought he was absolutely the, the, the centre of the show. Really enjoyed it. Mm. Yeah, no, no complaints on my behalf. There seems to be a strange subset of fans complaining about it having turned to fantasy rather than mm. science fiction. Yeah, no, no worries on my side at all. I thought they were both, both our new regulars are fantastic. I thought there were some, some lovely moments there. Very reminiscent of the TV movie that's that scene with the policeman, which I think was that the one they'd slotted in. It was, yeah. Was that the one they slotted in quite late? Yeah. Yes, when, a, when apparently in response Disney, to a Disney, Disney gave their notes. Because, I mean, it was very reminiscent of the episode of Rose, wasn't it? It took lots of little mm. cues and moments, and uh, but showed <laughs> how much further you can push it. Him like, sell it the new, 18 years later or whatever it is. Mm. Yes, Russell tried to keep the Doctor off screen as long as he did first time round mm. with with Eccleston, and, um, and Disney lost their nerve. But I don't <laughs> think it mattered. Mm. No, I thought that was a lovely little scene. Quite nice character establishment there. So, even if he did it through empathy rather than McGann's curiously curious habit of knowing, knowing the future lives of everyone in San Francisco in mm. nineteen ninety nine. <laughs> I, I even forgave the episode the musical number, which I suspect for some <laughs> fans as, ah, as old yeah. as me was was the one that was going to provoke. Uh, but it just was full of, I think Christmas episodes get a, a sense of latitude, certainly for yeah. myself when I'm watching it, and a musical number, the fantasy element with the goblins. Um, yeah. I can forget even the intelligent gloves I can forgive uh, on a Boxing Day morning. So, um, you know, it did nothing to take the shine off what was a spectacular episode. Yeah, yeah I mean, for me, I guess it was it, it was so much fun a lot of the time that I wasn't too you're worried about anything else I mean the only thing I'd say that has slightly got my goat about the whole RTD reboot is this Mavity thing and, and honestly it's just my, my, my the twin worlds of linguistics and science have kind of hit in my brain <laughs> and, 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 and I find it slightly frustrating because yeah, I mean essentially there was a word for gravity already mm. pre-Newton Mm. I mean, if nothing else, it meant seriousness. But and and of course, Newton didn't invent gravity. I mean, the 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 ancients knew about it. It's just that mm. he, he developed a way of of expressing, I suppose, slightly more accurately how it all how it all worked. So yeah, it, it's it's a little bit annoying. But I, I'll, again, uh, if the payoff is good enough in a few stories' time, then I'll uh, I'll uh, <laughs> get, get the Grinch back inside. Yeah, I did wonder about that. I mean, at first I was. I was willing to give it a pass and couldn't work out why everyone's, you know, I know I was more bothered on a linguistic level than on a history of science level, yeah. because basically at the moment you've got 
you can sit here under an apple tree and an apple for you. They said, you know, you're in fantasy land anyway. Yeah, yeah. But so I was more, I was more bothered by the linguistic thing than than anything. And all these people started saying, well, you know, it's going to be an arc, or like expecting there to be a payoff. And I was thinking, wasn't it just a stupid joke? And then lo and behold, yeah, they appear it's to be arc. running with it. So so now we, yeah, yeah, maybe it's maybe it's Bad Wolf. Maybe it's the. Uh, it was this season's Bad Wolf. We're going to meet mm. Mavity in episode eight. Yeah, it's lovely that we can overthink these things, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I came away from the Star Beast thinking, how did they find so many houses in London in a row and converted their lofts? Yeah, you know, yeah. mm. <laughs> that was lucky. Uh, uh, the only good. time I've ever seen that done before was in Coronation Street. There was a storyline in the nineties about all the. Which um, was I seem to was also oddly enough about people escaping from goblins. Mm. Strange mm. The, <laughs> the things yeah. that recur. It's, uh, it wasn't. It was about Les Battersby spying on um, Ken Barlow or something. It was really, mm. really. It's also well, Ken in Ken Barlow, um, Magician's Nephew, isn't it? The C.S. Lewis book. They go out into the lofts and they mm. they sort of interconnect. But anyway, uh, we're getting yeah. very very deep now, and perhaps yes. we shouldn't be. Anita, Anita Dobson will be revealed as Auntie Mavity. <laughs> anyway, talking of Coronation Street in the 90s. Um, yeah. Yeah. Images of Fendal. <laughs> okay. Old, um, old Hopalong himself. Old, hop, old Hopalong. Yeah. <laughs> Hopalong Hinsliff, as they called him in the trade, I believe. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> okay, so Image of the Fendal, uh, written by Chris Boucher and directed by George Spenton Foster. Which apparently was the last story that Bob Holmes commissioned before he disappeared off to do other things. <laughs> so look, I mean, guess what? So you, what you're what you expecting me to say is, I haven't seen this since it was originally broadcast. But I watched it, and I'm not sure if I watched it on original broadcast. I mean, it... it <laughs> I knew that was going to be... I knew that was coming. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> That's much more likely than you saying you've seen it twice. <laughs> <laughs> look, I remember Horror of Fang Rock... And I definitely mm. watched Invisible Enemy, and I've certainly watched Invasion of Time, but mm. I don't know. Something must have gone wrong in in the late autumn of of uh, 1977, or alternatively, I've I just hit a memory worm or something. But yeah, Sunmakers, Underworld, and this—it's all a bit all a bit misty. I I was involved in a bit of amateur dramatics, aged ten, uh, and whether they, we we did it on a Saturday afternoon, I'm not quite sure. But um, anyway, there we go. I definitely read the Target book, though, so I wasn't unfamiliar with the story. Although... Sorry, are you seriously telling us you haven't seen it until this week? Well, I couldn't have told you that until I watched it, but having watched it, I have no memory of it. So I think I think this is the first time I've seen it. <laughs> so I, um, I know we go through this every week, but so you never had a complete collection of VHSs proudly lined up, or, or even DVDs? Well, not as such. Not as such? It was... That's a fancy way of saying no. Wow. wow. I'm shocked. You think, okay. you, you think you know somebody. <laughs> but, okay. but, but I mean, I, I believe that very very shortly I'm going to be getting a, a, a new Blu-ray with, um, with season 15 oh. on it, and then I'll have no excuse not to, wa- not to have watched it. Mm. Well, hopefully you've watched it now. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to go next because you've given me a segue, which go is on. that I, do, I know I watched this the first time round because... Unlike certain stories that season, which I don't have a strong memory of, I do have a vivid memory of this, and particularly the cliffhanger to episode two, rather randomly. Mm-hmm. All right. But to explain that, I can tell you, I may have mentioned this before, I had a, a strange, ghastly fascination with skulls as a mm. child. 
uh, not in real life, mostly mostly the media. I, I was entranced by the title to Scooby-Doo, which which featured two skulls in quick succession, and this was the other skull that featured heavily in my childhood. Even though I yeah, even though I only saw it once, so I remember I remember that cliffhanger. Years later, when I um, read the book and thought, oh, that's where it came from. I remember the doctor offering the the skull, the jelly baby. In my head, there was that, that separation between the moment where he offers the jelly baby, does a bit of business, and then is drawn in to touch it. It's, it's when he gives it the jelly baby that he gets taken over by its power. But I think it was the combination of the skull and seeing Doctor Who screaming in anguish that, that seared that into my, I gather, six-year-old, just turned six, six-year-old mm. memory. So there you go. The rest of it, no. Mm. Just that bit. Good I was delighted to I was delighted to discover that it has a context that, that scene and there is actually a story that goes with it. Well, I was just turned seven. I I would have watched it live. I, I kind of agree with you, Richard, that it was one of those that stuck less in my mind than Fang Rock, Invisible Enemy. So when I I guess I next watched it when I was around about eighteen nineteen, it didn't quite have that pang of nostalgia that I got from other episodes from that season uh, and I've just periodically you know watched it since it come, keeps coming around whether a DVD release or you know what, watching through Classic Who with my son you just you just get to it every seven or eight years or so so probably have seen it six or seven times I reckon Wow Yeah No I'm another one that I don't have a memory of I remember quite a bit of season 15 bits of talents and bits of horror of Fang Rock and an awful lot of the Invisible Enemy. Strangely, I've got a I've got a gap for this one, as well. But I, I, I kind of I remember the iconography of it from from the novel. I definitely had the novel, and um, devoured that novelization. Now I'm trying to think, but I do remember. I certainly remember the the bit with the hiker being very well rendered by. I guess it was Terence novelized it, wasn't it? But, um, yes, it was. It's yeah. I remember that. That freaking me out, and the, yeah, it all worked very well as a normalisation. I can't remember when I'd have probably first saw it when it came out on VHS. Whenever that would have been ninety three, apparently. So okay. <clears throat> around then. Hmm. All I can say is you lot must have been made of stern stuff to sit through all that skull action and, and not remember it. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're all of a certain age, so you, there's no I don't know yeah. no excuse. So I guess I mean when I, as I was watching it the other day, I mean the, the the thing that came to me immediately was it felt it feels like a a spiritual successor to Pyramids of Mars. I mean mm-hmm. it turns out that it's the same physical location that I, I hadn't appreciated that until I looked um, <laughs> in 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 the notes afterwards. But I mean I guess it it, it feels like that. It it feels like a slightly less accomplished production to me. But uh, but I mean at the same time. There's an awful lot of nonsense in Pyramids of Mars that that maybe I give a pass because it made such a huge impression of, on me as a boy, you know, with all the mummies and everything. And and of course, I'm watching this as a 56 year old. It's it's kind of hard for it to, to to come quite the same way. So so I'm I'm interested to hear what you have to say uh, to to see if if maybe I'm being a bit harsh on it. I feel like its reputation might have diminished over the years. Uh, once upon a time, the obvious thing people always said about it was it was part of that small that half of season 15 that felt Hinchcliffe-y mm. I suppose the half that feels Graham Williams-y even though they're all scattered they're all sort of mixed up in the final analysis mm. the scary ones the gothic ones and the comedy ones mm. so 
that's what people used to say, and now I feel like nobody seems all that keen on it all of a sudden. But to take the middle ground, I'm very fond of it because I have such fond memories of it yeah. from back in the day. But it does, it isn't quite there, is it? It's, but it, on the other hand, <laughs> it's not trying to do quite the same thing as the as the typical Hinchcliffe gothic no, horror, yeah. no. because it is doing the thing that <laughs> it's going to be first to say it. <laughs> it's not just Doctor Who haunted house or Doctor Who um, scary thing in an old house. It's quite a mess. Mm. So. It's um, the third time that Chris Boucher has ripped off something quite specific, which enables him to create three very distinct stories and makes him look like a bit of a genius. But because he never, because he only writes those three, we never get to see what he would have done when he ran out of ideas. Hmm. I think you have to wait till he starts writing books 20 years later for, for that, and they're all sequels to Robots of Death, aren't they? <laughs> a bit unkind, but... Um, so I'm going to be, I'm going to reveal my ignorance here and say what's the face of evil rip-off. Oh, <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't ask me that. Am I going to put you on the spot now? <laughs> I lied about that. Just so that I could say something glib. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. You caught me out. Uh, sorry, not intentionally. Yeah, it's it's interesting because, again, I'd agree, it doesn't have quite the reputation. It's it's funny because it's trying to do the gothic thing and it's trying to do, it's doing a lot of what Hinchcliffe and Holmes era stuff does, but it's... Does it lose a certain something? I, I guess because it's set in the present day and it's closer to like Seas of Doom and things like that. So it's got that slightly 70s drama, 70s hard-bitten, 70s genre thing going on with the scientists. So we, we only ever see the that bubble of the team that are there. So it doesn't lend itself to flowery period flourishes of, of um, dialogue and things like that in the same way as, as horror fang rock talons. And a lot of, you know, and things like pyramids, I guess. You know, you've, we're all steeped in the genre and everyone here is acting that bit more mundane, you know, mundanely, because right. it's what we're, you know, more what we're used to in general. I mean, okay, they, they're going down a, yeah, they, you know, it's, it's riffing on mad professors and things like that, obviously. But it feels slightly different because it's because it's not a period piece. Mm. I mean, it's become a, I guess it's become a period piece by default, but... But I've got a lot of time for it. I know I, I kind of kept thinking, oh, is this the one where Chris Boucher's gift for Boucher Boucher? Have we had that debate already? No idea. No, everyone's shrugging. Okay. <laughs> um, it'll always be Boucher to me. I was I always thought, oh, is this the one where his, his sort of gift for gift for dialogue and the you know the sparky one liner lets him down? But it it doesn't really. It's just all set in a slightly different register. Rick, yeah. any opening thoughts? I thought a bit about how seven-year-old me would have viewed this as a, a veteran of three or four years of Doctor Who by then. Mm. And it's absolutely there, the parallels to pyramids and seeds. It's a scientist getting hold of something alien, absolutely beyond their capabilities to deal with it. Something terrible is going to happen. And by and large, something burns down at the end. Mm. <laughs> so I would have been bouncing on my sofa when it opens up with a skull, some random rambler getting his in the forest, and a group of scientists so dysfunctional, it was only going to end badly. The excitement <laughs> for me must have been unbearable. And to an extent, I still get that thrill off it today. And I think it's that blend of very classic Doctor Who elements, signposting that it's all just going to fall apart and go off the rails. It's 
makes it a tremendously exciting watch for me from the start. And um, uh, and that whole first episode, which is relatively Dr. Light, is carried by these fabulously dysfunctional characters. And um, the characterization, I, I don't find I can buy into some of the characters in Seeds of Doom and some of the characters in Pyramids of Mars quite as much as I can to picking my villains and heroes out of this cast of characters in Image of Vendal. Yeah. Excellent. I mean, it is quite a large cast, isn't it? And you've got... Eventually, yeah. yeah. I mean, you've got you've got What's-His-Face from um, from Day of the Daleks, who, who you know, seems, has quite a, a, a small role to start off with, and then he gets his sort of starring uh, option to the, later in the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it it sort of feels like there's too many to start off with, but I guess they've all got a specific function. Because mm. it always it derails you into it, you know, spo- you know spoilers, but it sort of kids you into thinking Fendelman's got to be the with a name yes. like that, and you know he's going to yeah. be the the big bad, whereas he's as much of a tool as you know of the yeah. scheme. You know, he's a he's a sucker in it as much as anyone. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah, that's an odd twist isn't it isn't it it's no single moment where that's revealed as a massive aha you didn't see that coming is it it's just a conversation in a corridor between um starman style 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 is the inferno isn't it yeah <laughs> the old chap yes ted um ted I, should, I should go back to ted moss. <laughs> <laughs> ted, ted moss ted moss ted yeah. moss yes hmm went on to be the uh Went on to be the groundsman in the first show. Yeah. <laughs> what? 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 I, what? I also quite like actually about that first episode. Thinking about it now, is that there's there's no mass massive info dump at the start. It it sort of it actually you know, for part of the time you, you you haven't really got much of a clue of what's going on, but it kind of reveals itself a, a, as it proceeds, which is quite nice. Yes, no, nobody is in control of all the knowledge. Hmm. Each character has a little bit of knowledge, tragically, because they've all got their own failed motives in that situation. <laughs> they don't share that information. Mm. Yeah. And it's not really until quite late in the story that all those threads come together in the hands of the Doctor to be then able to do something about preventing the catastrophe and you know mm. the, the human threat that, that exists. Mm. And, and I really like that about that. You know, and I, th- I think each character brings, as I say, that little bit of knowledge to the table, which is, which is quite clever in a story with a big cast. Hmm. Yes, yeah, and it's yeah, it does. It layers the way it feeds out the, you know, feeds out the information to you very well. You kind of get all these different elements. It, it's it's funny in a way that you know, given that he turns out to be quite a mundane character, that Fendelman is. So sort of brushes off the you know the the, the death it tries to hide the death. I mean it it sort of feels like he doesn't really have as much as a motive as I, as I thought he was going to have when it happened. It sort of felt like oh yeah he, he knows that something terrible is going to happen here, so he's trying to hush it up. But actually he's just I mean it's an inconvenience to him I suppose. He he doesn't really want the hassle of the police wandering around and sort of spoiling his his fun doing his his sonic time scan. But yeah. The death in the woods is is 
exactly though the start of that dysfunctionality isn't it Fendelman just wants to carry on regardless yeah. because he's utterly focused on this massive breakthrough in, in, in human knowledge Max Steele is he is more aware of what is likely to have caused the death because he's secretly building a, a coven in the basement uh, so he's motivated to to keep yeah. his information quiet Yeah, Adam Colby who's an interesting moral tale in terms of how to survive in these sort of situations <laughs> mm. is utterly clueless despite claiming he's over ambitious uh, and just doesn't have a spine to step on anyone's toes so he doesn't deal with the information that he's got uh, mm. and Thea mm. Ransom who I think is already becoming under the influence of uh, of the Fendal mm. j- just kind of backs away from the whole issue so you've got four people who should be a team who are able to cope with this situation literally dispersing at the first sign of any trouble hmm. that that creates that excitement that says oh terrible things are going to happen this is brilliant hmm. <laughs> i like that analysis you're right i mean the character work is the most impressive thing here because although some of the characters seem on the surface familiar archetypes from doctor who there there's a slight twist on all of them isn't there and a particular combination of them i mean it's I suppose it's a bit like a base under siege with these characters all clashing in a confined space. But they, rather than um, just being picked off one by one or going mad one by one or whatever, as we might normally expect, they all the power plays up and down mm. in some rather unexpected ways. And also the strange tonal mixture. I mean, the <laughs> the fact that one of the scientists were used to the one of the one of the scientists having the, a, a, a secret mad plan of their own, which is covered by Fendelman. But the, for one of them to be secretly a cultist and for it to switch to the demons in the basement, yeah, it's like <laughs> two different Doctor Who stories going on at the same time. It is Pyramids and Mars on the ground floor with the <laughs> yes. demons in the ba- That's basement. Good point, yeah. And um, <laughs> Dudley's doing his usual mad organ music, but uh, yeah. it's, tight. it's famously very little it music is. in the story. And even when he is allowed to compose mm. something, it's turned down quite low. I mean, mm. compared to the. <laughs> The way it rattles the speakers um, when in pyramids when he's yeah inferno like on the streets the demons in the sheets if you it, know, it, if you it, well I was going to say it reminds me of the, of how they describe that haircut isn't it you know it's sort of business at the front party at the back this is this is uh, yeah, it's a funny old mixture isn't it but it's but it's a good one <laughs> I like that I, I kind of qu- quite like so so Tom is is sort of playing it for laughs in the in the first part of this you know and he's got the the stuff in the TARDIS, it's a little bit jokey. Mm. There's the hello ladies with the cows. Nicely done, mm. mind you. Not it's not it's not sort of peak mm. Tom woo, but it you know, but it's but it's quite humorous. But then as soon as he hits the the, the manor house, he becomes deadly serious. And he's mm. he's, he's he's absolutely all on it. So so he clearly likes this story. He's he's mm. he's not um he's not trying to find other things to do with it. I think it's a in that sense it's it sort of it's got the edge on in that particular way, on pyramids, and it's got that tonal shift. Whereas with with pyramids, it starts with the doctor's got a gob on from the from the <laughs> very stuff <laughs> from the very start. And okay, we get a little bit of a laugh out of out of Sarah taking the piss out of him for it. But yeah, um, yeah I, f- I find it more interesting when he switches mm-hmm. like that. But the the other thing I find it interesting about this adventure versus pyramids and seeds. That's- we're using them as comparisons, mm. is the strength of female characters yeah. in the, yeah. in the mm. story. 
So well, we, we've got one, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> it, well, few, indeed, uh, a few actually. Yeah, indeed. So there's there's not yeah. really anyone in pyramids or seeds, or yeah. frankly, Mask of Mandragora, which has that kind of mm. cult in the basement type mm. storyline. So we've got Leela, who's really powerful, duffs up Ted Moss at the first opportunity, yeah, scares mm. the living daylights out of Tyler. We've got Tyler's mother, who probably is the only one who has a real sense of the scale of what's going on in terms of mm. the threat, is already providing these little salt men to protect mm. people from what, what she knows is coming. We've got Thea, who in, in some respects is a weak character that she gets put up for sacrifice, but she becomes the high priestess of which all the Fendal's power is channeling through. Mm. So you've got three there, the, the, the three female characters all playing a powerful role in an episode in a, in a Doctor Who story where I'm not used to, at the age of seven, seeing <laughs> anything but no. white men. Well, well, not after not after three years of um, the homes. No. It's, it's not entirely clear who's at fault there, but unfortunately we can't entirely say that it isn't Robert isn't Bob Holmes, can we? Because even outside the Hinchcliffe era, I meant to say Hinchcliffe just now, not Holmes. Even outside that era, he's um, he's a bit touch and go on female characters. Whereas Chris Boucher, hmm. Boucher, Boucher, is clearly very forward thinking. I say forward thinking. <laughs> Some people have got it right in the 60s. It was the 70s that uh, hmm. where, where that suffered hmm. until. I... I want to talk about, about a bit about the pacing. I don't know if I've got anything very intelligent to say. I don't want to over, overplay this idea that it's not popular. I've just looked up the latest the poll, and the 60th anniversary poll in DWM. It comes halfway down mm. okay. the Tom Baker, the fourth Doctor rankings, mm. which is pretty good, isn't it? I've heard, I've heard people complain about the Doctor not being in the first episode very much, as if that's a flaw. <laughs> and I was possibly wondering if that was something carried through. People think that is oddly paced and I wasn't that bothered after the first episode the Doctor had still only just arrived at the gates because it's hardly unprecedented mm. for who but then as episode 2 went on <laughs> it seemed to me that becoming a bit more obvious the Doctor's being sidelined because as soon as he makes it into the house meets the main characters gets involved in the main plot mm. he's locked up mm -hmm. yes rather unceremoniously then he escapes wanders around a bit on his own mm leaves and then in episode three yeah, he, hmm. when he clears off the TARDIS as a leader it becomes really apparent that Butcher is going out of his way to keep the Doctor away from the main story or right away mm. from the characters that are driving the plot forward which is unusual and isn't entirely successful so for my money it doesn't ruin the story but it is something that's nagging at the back of my head is not as unusual I wonder if that's why Tom Baker didn't like it. I mean, it can't be the dialogue. Hmm. But um, famously, this was the one which he threw the script across the room, wasn't it? Was it? And okay. caused Chris Boucher to fantasise about him. Oh, right, yes. Being <laughs> eaten by dogs or something, hmm. whatever it was he he was hoping would, whatever fate he was hoping would befall uh, him. The production notes There's implied that was because the cars went out and got pissed before, <laughs> before the read-through. Which sounds and, uh, very plausible. Which Chris Bowser uh, Chris Bowser wasn't invited and <laughs> came in to find them tearing his. Oh, they all were. Yeah. Okay. Apparently. Mm. How odd. You'd think they'd have. Um... Well, I'm not sure what anyone would have to complain about. Mm. No. I'm sure they must all have 
had to recite worse dialogue than this in there. In their time. Oh, yes, yeah. And it's um, rather better than Edward Arthur deserves, in my opinion. But yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, him, never mind. I find um, him likable enough in a sort of Worcesterish way. So, okay. Well, you know. I was going to. I'm not going to turn into David Mitchell mode and rant about him, but he does wind me up. I think he's he's my almost my number one flaw of this. Um, a character slightly overwritten for my taste, mm-hmm. and I think it needs to be underplayed when somebody's that wordy, mm. and he goes the opposite direction, just plays it to the hilt. I find him slightly insufferable. Is it just me? Oh well, uh, and it's <laughs> it's oddly enough, it's it's. I guess as close as to an audience identification character as we've got here. Mm. He's supposed to be the one of these awful scientists. He's supposed to be the one who's seen, who behaves in a recognisably human way, but he's so... Mm. I realised I was mistaking him for um, Ian Ogilvy off um, The Saints. Oh, yes. For a yeah, bit. There was a bit of a resemblance there, wasn't there? And, and then I realised it definitely wasn't him. Mm. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, no, it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So let me get this. So is Colby meant to be the archaeologist of the of the four? He is the one who's good at jigsaws. So yeah. he gets lots of bits of skull, and ta-da! So he's put it together. Put it together. Right, and apparently, okay. according to Fendelman, therefore is in line if he keeps his nose clean for Nobel Prize. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not. I mean, the thing is, I think. One thing that this is probably inspired by is Lu- is the finding of Lucy, right. which would have been in you know Australopithecus Hathfrancis, mm-hmm. which was I was trying to figure out exactly when when that was made public, but they found found her found that skull in seventy four, and obviously right. there's obviously there's Leaky Leaky the dog mm-hmm. is a yeah. reference to Louis and Mary and you know cause, who were also leading expeditions in the Rift Valley around that time. And uh, although someone pointed out, I think it was it Boucher said, uh, you know, he only realised afterwards that, of course, just calling the dog Leaky would just be, everyone would assume it just pissed everywhere. <laughs> but that was obviously, I was trying to find out when it was sort of publicised for the first time, but it was it was certainly a big, very big human origins story right. at around that time, certainly in the mid-70s. So I can't imagine So that's where was... Boucher got it from. So, But when Nigel Neal wrote this the first time round, Hmm. What, have we any idea what he was inspired by, or what did that come straight out of his head? Uh, well, probably, probably a bit of Louis Leakey, but then he doesn't have the human. He doesn't. There's no human skull in the pit, though, is there? Is <laughs> no, there? of course not. Yeah. It's they the, the sense that <laughs> aliens have always been here, influencing. Yes, humans. yeah, but they find the they find the buried ship and everything mm-hmm. in Hob, Hob Lane. They do Hob, Hob Lane fetch Bowie, uh, Fetchworth, and all of that. And obviously, yeah, the possession angle and all of that stuff riffs on it and the influencing. But yeah, there isn't the skull element, so I think he kind of took the two things and did a remix. It must have been quite crowded in prehistoric Earth because you've got the demons and you've got the Osirens and you've Mm -hmm. got the Fendal all trying to um, influence the evolution of man. I wonder if they could get Scaroth, yeah. That's right. I wonder if they're getting each other's way a bit. And and if you'll you'll pardon the gag, don't forget the bloody silence. (laughs) Presumably everyone did. Presumably at least that one explains itself that everyone, every time someone ran into one of them, they they don't forget them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think there's a there's a nice line in 
image that that takes you from the very beginnings of time right the way through and it it gets sufficient mentions that it doesn't feel like it's an accident in mm. terms of the doctor talks about the Fendal being a creature from his own mythology mm. suggesting you know it's been around since time immemorial there's the the piece around Mar Tyler not being a name but being a title that's clearly been around for a long yeah. time Fendelman has this sense of predestiny his, his name was somehow a label that was drawing to this to him, you know, through generations. But there's also Leela in that in initial TARDIS scene talking about, oh, I'm going to Earth, which mm. as a side she's yeah. already done, mm. talking about, I get to see my ancestors. And there's this, mm. it's neatly done. It's not rubbing it in your face, but it just keeps it mentioning long enough to say, Chris Boucher had a, had a plan here in terms of the story he was trying to tell. Hmm. Oh, goodness, yes. No, it's very clever. Yeah. Do we want to talk about the fifth planet? Go on. Uh, if we knew somebody who knew something about the solar <laughs> system, they could perhaps enlighten me on how this all happens and comes about. Uh, well, and, yeah, I mean, the fifth planet idea was, yeah, I mean, that was a round, long-standing piece of, uh, long-standing assumption. And if it goes back Back to well, the discovery of the asteroids in about right. eighteen hundreds. There was this, there's this weird thing, the Titius Bode law, that someone someone spotted in the seventies in the late seventeen hundreds after they discovered Uranus. They found that there was this numerical law that pretty accurately described where all the planets sit in the solar system, but had you know out as far as Uranus, but had a noticeable gap between Mars and Jupiter. So there was one sort of missing from the sequence. So that inspired them to... That's what conjured up the idea there was a missing fifth planet there, and then people went looking for it, and they found Ceres there, and which was the first asteroid, and now they found the whole asteroid belt since. And these days we know that it's because the tides, tidal forces from Jupiter are too strong, so they'd have broken up anything that tried to form there wow. and so so that's why the you just end up with this debris of stuff that's left over from the solar system it's kind of herded into from the birth of the solar system it's herded into this particular spot and a couple of other areas but the idea it hung around certainly well into my yeah well into the it was yeah. still in popular, popular science books in the early 70s that I yeah, was yeah. reading my, my big boy's book of space would have said that yeah yeah, that it was a planet that had broken up rather than one that had never formed. It was only really when they got a handle on how much mass there was and that it, there really wasn't enough there that the idea kind of died a death. But then you've still got you've still got jokers like von Daniken and Velikovsky, who did his world, Worlds in Collision thing. That was big in the 70s, the 60s and 70s as well, that were um, promoting all sorts of planetary pinball at around that time. Giles? Mm-hmm. That was an amazing answer to a pretty flippant <laughs> question. <laughs> I wasn't expecting any of that. Sorry, maybe <laughs> I should have done that. Well, ironically, yeah, and we've come back to um, we've come back to it in the twenty first century from when they do all this planetary modelling, and they find that yes, they can now predict there there may have been another giant planet somewhere out, and they can work out where where all the planets kind of migrated around. It's a it's a book I want to write at some point, actually. It's, um, I've got a proposal for it. 
uh, called Lost Worlds, which is all about lost planets of the solar system, things that people thought they discovered, and hmm. things that never existed, and things that may have existed, and so on. So yeah, it's uh, yeah, I'd done the research on that one at least. That's amazing. So how did the Time Lords hide it? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for your next trick. Yes. Ah, um, yes. The production notes pointed out time loop come up in Claws of Axos as well, mm-hmm. doesn't it? Favorite bit of time oh, trickery. Hmm. It's funny going back to the um, the sort of pyramids parallels. There's that sort of in a bit in uh, in pyramids where the doctor shows them the future and says, "Look, we can't just escape with Sutek from Sutek. It's you know, got to got to fight it here." And there's there's that kind mm. of fu- funny, unexpected TARDIS scene, sort of somewhere. In, it's episode three in this, which yes. you, know, you don't you don't yeah. normally get a bit of an interlude in the TARDIS hmm. at that sort of stage. Well, no, exactly. I, I, I think these are two things that just slightly stick for me with about this episode, and I really am nitpicking. In the first uh, episode, you've got all this beautiful atmosphere about this. You've got the yes. woods at night, the, the old manor house, and then bang, you're inside the TARDIS. Some of that feels awkward because there's a bit of canine continuity. How do we... Yeah. You know how yeah. how soon into a series do you have to start explaining why you're not going to have him? Yeah. <laughs> Some interesting pronoun discussion for those uh, of a yeah. newer generation. Mm. So that kind of breaks things up, and then you get this extraordinary bit where the Doctor decides he's suddenly going to pop off in the TARDIS, the unreliable TARDIS, to yeah. a very specific yes. point in space and time mm. t- to gather some information and then return to the piece, which. I think we should bear in mind for when we get to discuss Hyde later on. Mm, yes. I remember people quoting this story when people used to write articles in Doctor Who magazine about the development, the use of the TARDIS in the programme. This does stick out as a bit of an outlier and you either mm. have to come up with some <laughs> convoluted way to explain it, um, like he's, I don't know, perhaps he presses the fast return switch. But really it's, considering it doesn't even need to be there. Yeah. It's either, I guess Chris Butcher didn't know the programme well enough to know that that wasn't something you could do and Rob Bob Holmes was too busy to bother correcting it. But yeah. um, it was, as I say, I, it just feels to me like he's trying, it's more about keeping the Doctor away because mm. he's, Butcher must have thought that as soon as he arrives, he'll fix everything. So it's more about just keeping him away from the solution because he, and I suppose it's, it's a quite an honourable way to do it because of, a lot of writers just have him arrive at the beginning and then get locked up and escape and go through some, you know, spinning their their wheels that way, mm. which is much less dignified solution to the problem. I think it's more explicable um, when you dis- when you read that. In fact, it was Anthony Reed who gave this script a bit of a going over at the end oh. as a sort of you know his, his, as his first go in the world of Doctor Who. So, yeah, he probably wouldn't have known that that wasn't a thing he couldn't do. Interesting, hmm. and that could cover some of my other, some of the other oddities, like the Doctor's diminished involvement. Hmm. Yeah, I, I meant to go back and check because, of course, Face of Evil is all the Doctor's vital to the entire plot, isn't he? But I meant to go back and check Robots of Death to see how how he deals with the same problem there, but I didn't. But I mean, it's uh, it does feel almost like when those. It's a common criticism of guest writers coming into Who that they have a story of their own and characters of their own that they fall in love with. It's something that <laughs> it's normally a problem for guest writers in this era, but later on the script editor himself, Eric Saywood, used to 
suffer from the same problem. Mm. Um, just right, the doctor almost is an, an annoyance, get in the way of the story you want to tell. Yeah. But I, I don't know what happens to Dennis Lil's accent halfway through this because he starts <laughs> out being going one way, and then he, he sort of goes quite Troughton-esque in sort of the middle of the story. You know, it's it's two part salamander and one part you know the thing out of the highlanders or whatever it, it, it but yeah i mean I, th- I think he sort of just about gets it back on on track again but i'm not quite sure where he comes from <laughs> <laughs> i agree I, yeah i just wanted to mention i've made a note i'd, I'd like to say when the doctor first meets him and he throws away the line is that re- he's, he calls him fendelman says is that really your name fendelman and the script throws that away as a, a sort of little clue but it doesn't want to hang a lampshade on it and Tom Baker in an acting sense throws it away as well and I thought that was very nicely done yeah but then, you know it's part of, the same, part of the same problem the doctor instantly knows, seems to know what's going on always has some very nasty suspicions as you would say mm-hmm. yeah. uh, I've got a few things in praise of Image of Fendel the, yeah. uh, the last on my notes I thought the monster was great hooray thank you Fendel <laughs> looks terrific in that corridor scene in particular it's, it's well realised, well lit, does the trick for me. I quite like the transformation from Thea into the High Priestess for the time. You know, and it's a bit shoddy the, uh, the 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 basement area, but that transformation is done really well at the time. I always like when Doctor Who around that time played like kids did in the playground. Because it just was that connection with you as a child. So that whole thing about not being able to move your feet when you were right. terrified by the Fendal yeah. I liked. The hiding under the kitchen table. And the hugely entertaining thron- assault throwing that uh, yes. Leela and the Doctor do. I mean, mm. Leela is a warrior of the Seventeen and of Gallifrey. But she can't throw salt for love nor money and neither <laughs> Baker and it's, it's just brilliant yeah. it, I took out a couple of cameras lethal did they so did yeah. that did the, did the dialogue pass me by is, the, is it in the dialogue um, about throwing salt over your shoulder yes he does mention that he does mention um, it yeah because I know it must have been I've already been book, doing it's, it's, stuck, it's stuck with me well mm. it's part of a long section basically. where the doctor keeps mm. keeps making suggestions for uh, and then undercutting them by saying, oh, of course, it could just be a coincidence. Or mm, yes, yeah. yeah. And I like the burning down of the Priory effect. That was mm. nice oh, yes. spooky. It's a great-looking story, isn't it? And mm. people used to sell it yeah. with faint praise by saying, oh, well, you know, it's so good. It looks so good it could be a, a Hinchcliffe production. Which is, <laughs> but it's, it's very... Apparently that was the second time they went... Is... Sorry, Paul. Second time? No, I was just I was just going to say with regard to the burning down of the pyro, apparently that was the second time they weren't allowed to lay pyrotechnics anywhere near Stargroves. So um so they had to come up with an alternative solution to blowing up the building at the end of the story. It's very unreasonable when people lending you a location won't let you burn it down. <laughs> Sorry, Paul, I didn't mean to cut across. The um, the, yeah, the the film sequences look great. All that the lighting and the dry ice and everything. I mean, mm. every, in every in every era, they're adding a going a bit further than mm. than you have to, or indeed than people often do. But I'm glad you like the design of the Fen Fendaline because mm. I've always thought that was a terrific design and quite well realised. Mm. What always astonishes me when people have a go at it. I mean, what are they comparing it to? 
Which, <laughs> which Doctor Story is their imagination? Are they thinking do better? Mm. Must be that 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 really splendid green thing in in, in horror of Fang Rock, the Rutan. Yeah, I mean that's, a, that's, yeah. that's <laughs> a, such, such a splendid costume, that isn't it? Mm. You needed to be six for this. Yeah, season. yeah, absolutely. I was terrified by the well, not terrified by the Rutan, but terrified by yeah. its powers. You shouldn't get too close to it. Yeah. Mm. Um, I don't think they needed to make it CGI and give it tentacles and things. No, no, that's no, no, just that's true. And I, I now want a toy Fenderline, but I discovered that they released one a few years ago, and it costs about a hundred <laughs> quid on eBay. So I'll just have to carry on dreaming. You can knit one, maybe. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you can edit this out because it's very visual, but for your eyes only. In an attempt no. to publicise this for yeah. um, whenever it comes out. Uh, yeah. Ah, oh, splendid! <laughs> so um, that will accompany Richard whenever you're um, you're ready to release this. Splendid! Yeah, that's marvellous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been um, I've been a fan of Lego since since the, probably about 1970. So yeah, you, you, that's another uh, way you're on my wavelength there. <laughs> Fair well, you say you say you're a fan. You haven't actually built any of the sets since transmission. Um, there is that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did. I did. Sorry, most, I did most of my slightly. most of my best work in the in the early seventies. I, I suppose <laughs> probably. <laughs> <laughs> it's unusual to show suicide on Doctor Who. Uh, so that's an interesting mm. moment, isn't it? I mean, mm. it, 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 I think it works. I think it's. I think it, it's probably the right note for that point in the, in the story. But it's just, you know, for the seventies and even for Doctor Who as as a story, you, you don't often see that. Mm. You'll see you people certainly... making a sacrifice, perhaps, but not mm. just ending their life. Yeah. And apparently that was um, something that certainly Graham MacDonald... I th- was it Graham MacDonald? Controller? Or head of drama? Possibly, yeah. But when he saw the scripts, that was the thing that was immediately flagged up. But I think mm. I think Williams and um, Anthony Reeves already caught it and said, no, we're going to do something about that. Because mm. the, the original version, he actually... He got as far as him putting a gun in his mouth. Oh, was that that was how that was how he scripted it? I'd have thought what they'd be worried about was not so much what you get to see, but the fact the Doctor enables it by going and getting the yeah. gun. For mm, yeah, but that's again something that's I think yeah happens when a writer comes in with a slightly tangential idea of what the Doctor can and can't because it's the sort of thing heroes of another age. Mm. Lord Peter Whimsy does that as the climax for at least two of the of his books yes. not quite the same he's not he's not stopping somebody turning into a, a fenderling mm. <laughs> but he allows um the villain uh, uh the way out rather mm. than to escape the hangman's noose on a couple mm. of occasions i i think it's quite good because it, it it's effective because it, it it raises the stakes i think in that case you think it's not as going you know that's a serious solution to at least stalling the thing because doesn't he do, isn't there something similar in in pyramids, oh, am I imagining? Uh, uh, I thought he was pretty offhand about, and obviously he's very. He's offhand about. He's very brutal about the fact that Lord Scarman is already dead and has been for. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Ma- Marcus, whichever. It's, it's yeah. More... Hmm. yeah, and he doesn't get too excited about um, Doctor, whatever he is as well. He he, he dies. Mm. He's sort of quite cold about that, I think, but. Mm. Yeah. So it's a, it's a spin on the same it's, sort of yeah. different morality, but it's he's not actually Warlock, Doctor Warlock. Yeah. Mm. It's more of a human gesture than the, the alien coldness that we saw 
in some of those earlier yeah. stuff, isn't it? Yeah. I suppose, yes, yeah. Hmm. I thought there was a slight missed opportunity. This is not a criticism, but just uh, towards the end of the story, um, there's a lot of talk of the number that the Fendal needs to be core at is 13, right. is it? Or 12 mm-hmm. or 13. Yeah, yeah. And um, the Doctor points out that two of them are dead now, so... Yes, yes. So his oh, power it does diminished. feel a bit more Now, like in a, in a different points. story, we could have got yeah. a lot of, you know, another episode or two out of... Because we've still got a few of our heroes left, you know. Yeah. Fendal mm. could have drawn... We could have had the tension of, of some of the others remains of I was been drawn back in mm. and mm. Fendal getting his power back again. But it doesn't. <laughs> it yeah. just the, the number stays the same from that point onwards. So mm. it's um, and it doesn't use the um, because haven't they written out the um, the there's two security guards at least meant to be still were were on the premises until very yes, indeed. You know, I mean, the point is that been... most of these mm. most of these twelve or thirteen are completely faceless. Mm. Um, yeah, yes. literally because they've yeah. got hoods up. <laughs> mm. Extras. In some ways, though, Paul, you could say that they're avoiding that. Back and forth that often yeah. Doctor Who is criticised yeah, yeah, yeah. for, and saying, it's "Look, a, this is a four-part. It fit, fits neatly into four yeah. parts." Mm. Let's go Absolutely, for it. I've got. That's what that's what I spent most of my time thinking about the fact that it's such an unusual structure, but it's not sloppy or accidental. It's entirely deliberately written this way. Mm. It might not quite fit the normal arc of a four-part television story, but it would work as a film. Mm. If it if we watched the omnibus version, I bet nobody would have any complaints because you wouldn't notice these artificial. You think, oh, we're 25 minutes in. This needs to have happened at mm. this point. Mm. So, after uh, yes. Planet of the Spiders, you're, you're growing <laughs> on this omnibus idea, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> there's a, there's a, I'm sure there's an well, American PBS station still <laughs> rolling them out for you somewhere in the world. Yeah, there's a couple of um, fourth wall moments, I think, with with Tom Baker. So, I mean, mm. in the last episode, he sort of says time's running out. He might just have looked at the camera. He might not have been supposed to be breaking the fourth wall. The first episode as well, he says, she's done it again. And he kind of looks in the direction of the camera there as well. I, it didn't bother me at all. I mean, I, I you know, I, I was quite happy with it. I, mm. I, you know, it's, it's, it's Tom Baker. I mean, you know. But but I, I just thought it's, it's interesting. You don't see very much of that in Doctor Who. And then and then I suppose if I'm going to, if I'm going to be talking Tom Baker, there's a there's a thing that made me smile about the um, the fruitcake. It said you know uh, the doctor loves fruitcake. Well, of course Tom li- likes fruitcake because it it takes one to know one, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Yeah, there's some lovely little bits. Yeah, bits of business and stuff. The um the one where where I think it's Leela and Jack Tyler have just uh, uh they, they've killed the Fenderline, one of the Fenderlines, and and it's lying across them and then he goes and the doctor turns up and hauls up Leela and shouts that she's alright and then then drops her as he dashes off oh that's good isn't <laughs> See, it yes. now that looks that looks like I was thinking because mm. I, I was trying to look out for any signs of those two not getting on mm. because you can't because they're I was about to say they're both professionals yeah. <laughs> they're mm. both to a different extent professional but there that's a bit of business they must have worked out together mm. yeah. Yeah. because you that couldn't have happened with just if it was just one of their ideas. Mm. So that means they must have been working together yes, at some yeah. level, despite what we hear about. Louis the making off on the DVD. Yes, yeah. Do you want to go, Giles, on it? No, dude, that's all right. Yeah, basically, I think Louise Jameson said, you know, when they did filmed Horror Fang Rock, which I think was filmed at Pebble Mill, then they followed that up with the Sunmakers. She said by the time they got to this, you know, it was pretty convivial. And I think that shows in some of that, that playing the the scene where he, he pulls, she actually saves the doctor at the start of part three from the, from the skull. Mm. That's a that's a well worked 
two-hander, isn't it? You know, they look yeah. like they're comfortable enough with each other that they can play out a scene like that and it, it look, mm-hmm. uh, look look fun and appropriate. Mm. I think Louise waxes lyrical on also on the making of about the about the enjoyment of the rehearsal process just as a general thing, I guess, with the subtext of that's not something you get to do with the modern method of television production in comparison to this. You just don't get the sign to sort of work stuff up in that way. Watching these out of sequence as we do, or indeed in isolation, it's difficult to see if Leela's written any differently here, but famously Chris Booger wrote her much stronger than mm. certain yeah. some other writers, and she's certainly very intelligent here. Yeah. It's, it's 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 great because it really is obvious that, at certain points yeah. she keeps up with it, she keeps up with the doctor logically she mm. can work out exactly what's what the stakes are at any given moment even though all the terminology is unfamiliar to her. exactly it's that perfect balance of sorry Richard well I was just going to say there's a slight visual dissonance right so so you've got you she looks like she's from she's off a 1970s you know, fashion calendar suit in a, in a um, you know because this new top of the pops album. Kind yeah, of. I mean th- this this um, this new outfit is kind of just a bit weird, and she's also got her hair up, you know, unusually. So so that that's kind of looking, yeah. But at the same time, she's still behaving very much like Leela, and she's still very much in command of the whole situation. She's mm. the, the you know the person you feel quite safe about. She sort of feels like going round a haunted house you know Leela's going to be okay so mm. yeah she she carries it off fine it's just has that there's just that thing going on you're thinking it doesn't quite look like Leela mm. mm. uh, I think the, str- the strength of Leela's character in this is in the face of evil that's the ultimate savages versus right scientists piece mm. and when she she sees what's going on in Fetch Priory she sees a whole load of scientists spouting rubbish, and she sees in Ma Tyler the the, the tribal wise mm. person who understands the old ways. Yeah. So by at, at aligning herself with Ma Tyler, she's on really safe, familiar ground. She's able to act a, a, as she naturally would, and it lends her to to do things like you know her explanation for rescuing the doctor and knowing he was in trouble was. I had a feeling about it and I followed my feelings. Well, mm. well that, that's going to keep her safe from all this scientific nonsense that's going on and feels very true to the character that Chris created in mm. Face of Evil. I think that's a good good observation. But I think I think the thing in general is just that you look at Leela and you see how, how she's written here and it's just that thing of, yes, you've got all the intelligence. She doesn't have the context necessarily, but if you take the time to write someone who's intelligent enough to keep up with the Doctor... It gives the lie to this to all the people who say, "Oh, you can't do companions from the past because you'd have to stop and explain everything to them." And you just think, "Well, you never had to, you know, you don't have to do that really with, with her at all." And it's um, it, you know, it just gives it a really you know, different vibe. And she's yeah, yeah. I think she's the best example of that. They they sort of cheat with with Jamie. Mm. He just becomes yeah. <laughs> a modern. Yes. Well, he's yeah. Part, in two ways, partly because he's often more modern than he should be, and, and secondly because he then starts to get written as a bit of an idiot. <laughs> and it's, but between well, it's comic relief, whereas, yes, here, yes, it's spelled out very mm. clearly. I remember the phrase, the Fendal is death, how do you kill death, very well. Mm-hmm. Presumably from the book, presumably not from watching it when I was six. That, that line has stuck with me. I think that line in itself means it deserves a sequel. Mm. 
I want to see more Fandal. Mm. It's such a there's more you could do more with this concept. Mm, yes. I think they only scratched the surface because it does turn into as much as I love the look of <laughs> the Fandaline and um and Chloe Thea Ransom turning into a Gorgon. As much as I love all that, you could put the this concept anywhere and do something even even bigger with it, I think. Mm. Mm. Has any has any have there been any um sequels and other media to this apart from well oh there go and tell us well I haven't listened to it either of them but there's an eighth doctor and Lucy Miller oh, Fendale right. story in a big box set oh, well. and there's a Torchwood spin-off from Big Finish that has Gwen Cooper oh, quite well. interestingly on the cover as a high priestess <laughs> oh the yes I mean, I've never seen that no. but I haven't listened to that either right oh well that's I sh- might seek them out. Is that the newer set they did? Yes. So when they'd started ah, doing them as box sets rather than... Um... Yeah, thank you. The only one I have heard, I've been struggling to remember what series it is. Alan Stevens did a series with um, Chris Boucher properties, mostly set in the world of Robots of Death. Oh, yes. Caldor City. Caldor City. Caldor City, mm. of course. I think the last episode has the Fendal in, but right. I couldn't make oh, it on okay. table. Right. <laughs> Turns up to uh, suck the life out of everything and... Well, you see, this is, I quite like that sort of vampiric, you know, he doesn't make much of it, but the, the whole thing about the accelerated decomposition and so on, and the, mm. the mm. idea that it's, ta- it's just drawing energy from out of the chemical bonds that holds the whole things together and so on. I think that's a, that's a yeah, it's a, it's a feat of entropy, sort of, re- you know, really. It's quite a good, I always quite like that idea. It's quite nice that she's not ranting as well. I mean, I, I guess, you know, the, the, we're used to, oh, in God. those situations. Oh, I think it's, yes. Yeah. I think it's magnificently eerie. Because it's a very different vibe. The says a word, does. No, no. Because I I think that's the the nice... (laughs) And I guess that's the reason for a lot of the the plot construction and so on. is is because you've got to keep all the pieces in place and you've got to... When you unleash this thing, you know, I notice she doesn't get transformed until a little bit of the way into episode four. And Mm -hmm. episode four is also pretty short I think it only runs to 20 minutes so mm. so you've only got a very limited time with this thing unleashed really because okay. it's it's just like all hell breaks loose but it's very eerily done and you just have to hold off and get all the pieces in place to just then do that in in the last episode yeah it could have got very repetitive but the director manages to shoot uh, from loads of different angles and different different lighting conditions and... mm. Mm. And it's, um, yeah, and it's all really about probably... The... Go on. Paul, sorry. Giles. Giles. No, no. No, I'll belt up. Giles. Giles. <laughs> I, I want to know what you're going to say. No, I was just going to say it's all really about the motivations until you get to... Until you, because it's an implacable force of nature, really, it's not something that there isn't any reasoning with or there's no... You're not going to get any mileage out of that anyway if you have that sort mm. of monstrous elemental Lovecraftian kind of creature. Ah, yeah. So you you know, so so all your all the running you have to make, all the, the interesting dialogue and so on is gonna come for that first three episodes of of you know, moving the pieces into place and all the different motivations towards setting it up that ends up with it being unleashed and everyone realizes that they've bitten off more than they can chew. This is probably just me, but every time I realise this time that every time I watch this, I expect Thea to get away with it, to come back. I expect her to. I have this memory that she um, somehow implausibly 
gets released and turns back to normal again at the end and escapes with everyone. Because I guess that's what happens in other stories like this. Mm. And the fact that she <laughs> she doesn't makes her an incredibly tragic character because she's from the first moment we see her, she's starting to become affected by, isn't it? Isn't she? Mm. We barely ever we barely ever see her at her best. Mm. It's just a you see at the beginning of a downwards downwards spiral, and then four episodes of torture and tragedy, and then death. She has played very <laughs> tragically and and really well. And there's a point. There's a couple of points I think in the in the story that really bring that home to me. One is she goes looking for the doctor. She actually has yes. a self awareness yeah. to know mm. I'm in real deep trouble here. Mm. Here is somebody who is different and knowledgeable can save me. Goes to the room he's supposed to be locked in, mm. isn't there, and everything starts to unravel for her after that point. Mm. And the other point was she has a line uh, I can't remember it verbatim, but where she says, I think it was me planning this all along. And it feeds mm. back into that kind of predestiny, already affected by the Fenderlene kind of medium for the, for the Fenderlene type approach. Makes her a really tragic character. You know? mm. And like you say, she, she doesn't even get, you know, the, the, the general dressing up for the ritual type routine. Max mm. style, think he's going to become a god, just dumps her in her work clothes on the floor and starts the ceremony and mm. in in every way she um she she really suffers and that you know sadly makes image of Fendale far more watchable mm. uh well so one one little plot point related to that um just while I'm thinking about it um I noticed on the with regard to the doctor escaping from where he's been locked up and the door suddenly opens and the production notes said Oh, this accidentally looks as if he's been deliberately let out by someone, mm-hmm. and they yes. therefore implied that that wasn't the intention. I mean, how did, how did you read that scene? Do you read that as him having been let out, or I think you might be supposed to think at the first that it was a particular person, hmm. and then later on, if assuming you ever go back <laughs> to it in your mind, you think that it was something supernatural. I don't know because they then and whenever it is maybe it's at the end of the episode or the following episode when Thea has the dialogue with Stahl I think and Stahl says oh, he's he's escaped or he's so and, I, and they said and the production said ah but this is a plot hole because how does Stahl know that the Doctor's escaped and isn't around anymore maybe it's not Thea that has that dialogue but anyway Stahl Voices the fact he's aware of this fact. So I thought, well, hang on. So Stahl, Stahl lets the Doctor out, mm-hmm. presumably, possibly so that he won't talk to Thea. Agreed. Was then how I yeah. sort of thought, oh, maybe that's maybe that's the intention. Because yeah. it's it's Fendelman who sticks him in there in the first place because he doesn't want him mucking about with the getting in the way mm. of the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm. I think the only yeah, character yeah. that would have motive for wanting mm. the Doctor out would be mm. Thea and by virtue of the fact she goes to look for him mm. it won't have been her yes yeah this is true maybe I need to rewatch those first couple of episodes and uh, and uh, review it if only it was coming out on Blu-ray soon um. mm. <laughs> did, did we trample on a moment of gold from you Paul there a little while ago or as if <laughs> 
No, I'm going to keep my mouth shut from now on. <laughs> I thought, Paul, you were about to say that this story yes. had gone up in your estimation a lot. I was. I, well, it has, and it has as a result of this discussion. So I'm glad I didn't go to bed. Um, I'm glad I stood up <laughs> and shouted to you. No, I didn't. It didn't need a lot because, as I say, I, yeah, I've been torturing myself all afternoon since I watched it and wondering if they're what it is whether the fact that it feels unusual is it unusual for Doctor Who in, is, in itself or is it unusual because it's trying to be something else and not quite getting it right you know as people assume it's trying to be Pyramids of Mars and failing but I think we've you sincerely convinced me what I, what I wanted to believe in the first place is that it's doing its own thing mm. and succeeding at it mm. so here's to Image of the Fendal mm-hmm. I'm intrigued there's there's a there's a moment sort of fairly early on in the story where that kind of classic 1970s 60s 70s trope that the they they want to, to to call out but the the lines being cut and so that's the end of that it just mm. made me wonder what do you do now when you're writing a story i mean do you have to take an axe to the local mobile phone mast or something or or maybe that's maybe it's just not a thing in in, in modern drama but uh, yeah, it's it's just such, just such a classic from the base base under siege era that yeah. put a Faraday cell around the house. I don't know. Mm. Nick everyone's mobiles. Well, I think in Doctor Who terms, you have a mobile sometimes, and you don't have a mobile other times, and it's a huge <laughs> writer's mm. plot contrivance. Yeah, yeah. Is how you deal with it, Richard. <laughs> yes, well in. And in horror movies, the, the standard trope is it's a, oh, there's no signal wherever, you, wherever <laughs> yeah, they are. You pull your you phone know, out, look, you, show to the camera, exactly, where there's no bars, yes, and you yeah. say, there's no s- mobile signals down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And everyone goes, oh, yeah, I've had that. It's really <laughs> Excellent. I'm, 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 glad, I'm glad to know that there's a way around it. One final thought is I think yep. the, the, the general, um, I think the general viewing public was with us because they gave, Episode two um, of Fendal had an audience appreciation score of seventy-five percent, which was a record high for the series at that time. That was in the um, in the days when the high seventies was mm. pretty pretty near impossible to achieve. So, good heavens! Mm. Yeah, it got it got a decent viewing figures, didn't it? It was sort of in this mm. sort of sort of seven, eight, nine million sort of yeah. region, mm. which uh, I mean, yeah, people would would, would kill for these days. Mm. What about, what about George Benton Foster then? I mean, he, he does a, he, there's a couple of decent stories. There's this and there's yeah, Re, yeah. Reboss, Ribos, whatever it is, Operation. They, they both yeah, seem pretty good. And then that's that him it. as well? Mm. Another very atmospheric, mm. good-looking story. I was watching that only a couple of weeks ago. And I, I just noticed, because I, I know that Scott Fredericks, the other thing he's famous for among our sort of people is his one-off character in Blake 7. Right. And it was George Benton Foster who brought him into Blake 7. Okay. And, yeah. Episode weapon. Mm. Well, maybe that's it. Maybe he got um, moved on to Blake Seven, and and you know what didn't couldn't be bothered with the likes of Doctor Who after that. Who knows? Well, it's a bit of a Blake Seven exodus, isn't it, Chris Boucher? Yeah, you know, this is his last story because of Blake Seven, and mm. yeah. you know what a great hat trick of stories he, yeah. he left behind. Oh yeah, yeah. yes, George Benton Foster directed four episodes in the second. Uh, Second series of Blake Seven, so he was busy in 1979. Right. Mm. Mm. Okay. Explains much then. Any you got anything else you wanted to say about this one? Not hugely. Um, the only other offhand remark was that again from the 
uh, on the production notes, it mentioned that apparently um, this was misreported as, that this story was going to be called The Island of Fandor, um, according to according to the Duas in 1977, because Gordon Blow's misheard something down the phone. And um, it's it's a wonder to me that no one, no one in Big Finish or somewhere has made a um, has made a story called The Island of Fandor just as a big in joke. Uh, I mean, I I was a member of Dwas what about nineteen eighty two, eighty three, something like that. The amount of, of dross that had turned up in Celestial Toy Room. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's I mean, it's exactly the same stuff that appears online now. But uh, yeah, um, it, it, it certainly wasn't um, uh, you know an, an organ that you could uh, entirely trust. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. Hmm. Okay, well, look, uh, we've if we've if we've reached our, our uh, the end of that, we maybe have a have a quick. I mean, gosh, time has, has moved on there, hasn't it? If we if maybe have t- a couple of minutes to get a cup of tea, and then we'll we'll knock off um, Hyde thereafter. Sorry, Did I you say your line, Richard? Richard, yeah, I didn't hear oh, you say your you line. Say here's the tea. Oh, I missed it. Oh, I yeah. tell you what's gone wrong. Yeah, I'm, look, yeah. I'm, I'm looking at my original version. Sorry. Uh, ah. Original version. Oh. See, that oh. the pause. Blown it, blown it. Right, okay. blown it. Even lengthier pause than Let's usual. Go from there. <laughs> <laughs> I think I blew my first line as well. Sorry. <laughs>